Hi there. This week's episode is part two of a longer conversation I recorded. If you missed part one, go back to the previous episode so you can get caught up. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I want to get to the book and I want to get to Honeywell. So, so this is um, the book again is winning now, winning later. Uh, uh, just for people who may have joined us midstream, we're talking with Dave Cody, uh, who wrote the book Winning Now, Winning Later: How Companies Can Win in the Short Term While Investing in the Long Term. And and what I love about our conversation so far, Dave, is that everything you've talked about in your own career is doing both of those things. Like the value of saying, I'm going to focus on now and I'm going to focus on later. So you became, uh, you succeeded Larry Bossidy in, in 2002, I believe. Uh, and you were CEO president and then chair of the board. And the year you took office, Honeywell lost $220 million. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and obviously that changed while you were CEO, so, um, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> and what I'm so, and so you, you really paint the picture in this, in this excellent book about how you did that. And you break it out into three parts, which is laying the foundation, optimizing the org, invest actually four parts. Uh, investing uh, to grow and and then protecting the investment. So I want to take a little bit of a walk through through these parts. Uh, laying the foundation, and you talk about it as the as as sort of laying the intellectual basis for achieving strong long term and short term uh, results. It, it's it's funny in some ways that we actually have to share and focus on creating an organizational mindset that cares about both short-term and long-term results. Um, yes. I don't want to get into the reasons why, because I, I feel like we've talked about and written about that a lot. But I'm curious about you know, a couple of key ways in which you can change that mindset in people, where you can, like, especially when they're, they may not be saying what you're saying, which is, I'm going to hold my stock for 10 years. And and there's some ways in which they are, in many ways in which they are incented to achieve short-term uh, uh, performance versus long-term growth, especially in, in an era now where people stay in a job for three years. They don't stay in a job for 15, for the most part, or they don't stay in an organization for 15 always. So, and this is true even of lots of CEOs who are in the job and they're in there for five years and they move on. So I'm curious... How, like, what are some things you can teach us about how you change people's mindset around that? Well, uh, I'd say there's two aspects to it. Uh, One's easy, one's tough. Uh, The first one, and it's easy, is to talk about it and to say, okay, this is the uh, kind of culture we're going to have. This is the short and long-term focus we're going to have. And this is how you, everybody in the organization is going to see it. 
That's the easy part. You need to do it, but it's the easy part. Now the tough one, which is walk the talk. Everybody, uh, I mean, it goes back to parents who say, do as I say, not as I do. What happens? Kids do as they have seen their parents do. Well, the same thing is true in organizations. So if they hear you say, no more short-term actions, yet they all recognize that a, a big chunk of the income came from an accounting transaction or distributor loading at the end of the quarter where they had to ship out 25% of their shipments for the quarter in the last week, or they hear you talking about the importance of the long term. And in order to make a quarter, you cut funding for one of the long term projects. Well, it very quickly goes back to exactly what it was you were trying to get rid of. So they have to see that you are absolutely steadfast in what it is you've described when it comes to your own behavior. And that walk to talk is the toughest part because everybody's watching. Well, and it seems like you get a lot of bang for your buck in walking the talk when you're willing to make a trade-off that will cost you but reinforce your commitment. Yeah, I guess I didn't look at it so much as a trade-off. But, uh, I mean, going back to some of the stuff we were talking about before, I started with what do we stand for? And what do I think is important if we're going to be successful for a long, long period of time? And I knew that if we didn't get this stuff right, the accounting practices, the business practices, the investments for the long term, I knew that if we didn't get that stuff right, all my dreams, uh, whatever visions I had about what could be would not come true. So I felt it was more being steadfast to the kind of vision for the company that I thought was going to be important to us long term. And it's unusual for a CEO who comes in in some ways, because, you know, I think of a founder, I think of a Jeff Bezos, whose, you know, whose legacy is the founding uh, or Steve Jobs or like these people who, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm naming people who are well known by all of the listeners, but there's lots of people who start smaller businesses but who are so committed to the long-term of the business, family businesses, you know, where there's a real legacy that they're creating and et cetera. It's more unusual to come in as a new CEO and say, we're in this for the long-term. Mm -hmm. um, did, did you find skepticism in that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, finance guys, especially the corporate finance guys, all thought I was uh, off the rails and was going to destroy the company, destroy the stock price. I mean, I got a lot of very negative feedback in the beginning and investors weren't that happy about it either. So no, I did not get a lot of support in the beginning. And what do you do in the face of that? Well, uh, for me, this gets back to, again, you got to decide what you stand for and what it is you're promising you're going to do. And I felt like I uh, had run into something that was very different than what I'd been told was there. But okay, uh, life sucks sometimes and you just got to suck it up and figure out how you're going to work your way through it. Uh, getting back to you can't just blame a bunch of people or 
cry or whine about it. And as I've kind of joked to some people, uh, the book is called Winning Now, Winning Later, not Whining Now, Whining Later. <laughs> this is something that I, uh, you got to figure out what are you going to do and work your way through it. And I just kind of made that commitment to myself that I really thought this was possible and I was going to demonstrate it. And it was different than what I expected, but by golly, I was going to make it work. It got particularly interesting when watching a business uh, TV show one day when they were talking about me on the uh, on the show and they said, well, we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, we're not convinced this is the guy who can do it. After all, he didn't make it to the first tier of the GE succession race. And he wasn't even the first choice to run Honeywell. So, yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on at the at the time. And Hank Paulson said yesterday, which was kind of funny, he remembered reading about my appointment in 2002. And he said, oh, well, this is a, a really tough situation uh, that exists in Honeywell. And God, who is this no-name guy they're putting in the position? Is this even possible? So it was, uh, it was, there was a lot of negativity in the beginning. You know, one of the things I love about that is that arguably the only way to create a name for yourself is to be a no name in an impossible situation. That like that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of the definition of how we become a name, right? Because otherwise, well, that's, that's an interesting point. I can't say I've ever thought about it that way, but you're probably right. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like, did you have doubts? Like, what you know, like you're sort of saying you take a stand. Do you take a stand? you know, with a little bit of a sweaty palm saying, God, I hope this works. Or like, what was your level of certainty in your stand? Um, I would say I felt uh, relatively confident that uh, what I was doing was right. Because uh, I was pretty, I, I was, I'd say very confident that you couldn't continue to run a company with the kind of business and accounting practices that we had. I was not so confident that I was going to survive all of it. Because while I felt it was the right thing to do for the company, uh, it was not quite clear I'd be able to generate the short-term results that would be required to hang on to my job, or that the board was going to, or investors would hang with me long enough for me to demonstrate that things could be better. So yeah, I did have some uh, apprehensiveness there about, was I going to survive this whole thing? But I didn't see a lot of other choices. So, so there's a third. There's a there's a third piece which I would fit in the middle of the two that you've just defined, right? One is I'm pretty sure it's the right thing to do. I don't know that I'll survive it. But there's this other <laughs> piece in the middle. I'm pretty sure it'll work, meaning I, I I know it'll work, versus God, I hope this works or I hope this. Like I know it's the right thing to do ethically. I know it's the right thing to do in terms of running a business. But, but, you know, I, I like is doing the right thing also right for growing the business? Like, will it work in terms of my objective of winning now and winning later? And then there's this third piece, which you've talked about is like, will I survive the process? I'm curious about the middle piece. Uh, that's um, if it's a word, semi-confident. <laughs> so I, I felt like this was the smart thing to do and that you had to scrub a business down to its um, uh, good, good operating practices. Uh, I felt like there were a number of initiatives that I had launched 
that would work and would turn into something. But one of the points that I make about uh, leadership is that no leader should ever make a decision absolutely confident that everything is going to be perfect with that and that they should always be looking for falsification bias as opposed to confirmation bias that their decision was correct. So, no, I, I spent a lot of time looking over my shoulder to say, am I right? Is this working? Is it going to deliver the results? So, no, I was not 100 percent confident that, yeah, this is uh, absolutely going to turn into great long term results. I was confident that unless we scrubbed it down and uh, really got it down to the, the right foundation, that none of nothing would be possible that I was confident of. You know, you really demonstrate, and I've had this conversation with Harry Kramer and uh, on this podcast, and and I've written about it a lot. Of this, you know, and 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 this is throughout the book, throughout the book, and and throughout this conversation, you're talking about the the um, things that are commonly seen as dualities and not accepting the binary nature of it, right? Mm -hmm. And and you know, short term and long term, they're seen as dualities. They're not. Uh, doing great at your job currently and and performing in a way that's visible that shows people <clears throat> to do stuff in the future, oftentimes not seen. And this thing that I'm seeing in you is both confidence and humility. And the two are really, really critical. Like you can't succeed without confidence. And it's funny because I was I, I'm, I've been mountain biking a lot now that uh, I've been in sort of uh, quarantine quarantine <laughs> and and I'm and I'm mountain biking on some pretty tough stuff that I love and I and I'm and I mountain bike up which is all effort and challenging but then when I'm mountain biking down this this refrain keeps going in in my head which is like confidence like I could do this and humility which is don't be stupid you know and like these two things that really go together which sort of keep us alive and help us perform but a lot of people see that as a duality and you're either confident or you have, you know, or you're modest, but not both. And, and well, I, uh, for I me, I, I think that's actually a, a very good uh, example. Uh, and you hear me talk a lot about this in the book is that success is about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. The duality you were talking about. Right. And you don't want to be overconfident and you don't want to be over humble. Right. You want to figure out, OK, how can I be confident and with the right dose of humility so that I don't do anything stupid. Right. So that I, I'm bold enough to make the right decisions and take the right chances, but not so confident that I'm stupid about it. So I, it's a great example, I think, of that, uh, that phenomenon that ends up being important to success. Let's talk about optimizing the organization. This is part two of the book. And it's, I think, where the rubber meets the road kind of thing, right? Which is that you've sort of set the foundation. It's hard to do. You've got to be thoughtful and strategic. You've got to be clear and consistent. You've got to be focused and committed to your purpose. And now you actually have to create the systems in place, the processes, the culture, the, the, the character and commitment of the people so that they actually institutionalize the ideas that you've promoted. I, I think that's the hardest part. It's sort of the execution part. Um, give us a few thoughts as to, and there's lots and lots of information in the book, but about how you, the kinds of investments you made 
in order to focus on, you know, the, the process and the culture and the people? Well, uh, you've hit on one of my hot buttons, and that's the effect is a phrase I use a lot that says the trick is in the doing that we all know this stuff. Customers are important. Long term's important. Uh, if we all know this stuff, why is it there's so much of a difference between companies on uh, performance there? And the answer is it's how well you do it. There's a huge gap between what we know <clears throat> and what we do. In the book I wrote on emotional courage, leading with emotional courage, the willingness to feel things, is is specifically to try to address that issue too, which is you know, if we're willing to feel everything, we can then do anything that we have to, we, ha we have to, like, if, if everybody did what they knew, we would all be perfect. <laughs> well, the way I talk about leadership is it requires three things. And I did a share owner's letter on this at one point also saying the first one is the ability to motivate a large group. And I'll say uh, everybody sees that it's the most visible. Everybody talks about it. And if somebody can give a great speech, everybody thinks they're a great leader. In reality, that's 5% of the job. Right. The second big one is, can you pick the right direction? Because if you've got everybody motivated, but you spend 40 years wandering in the desert, you're not a great leader. That's, it hasn't been successful. Wait, the third Dave, piece, did you just say that Moses is not a great leader? Because that's uh, what it sounded it, like. <laughs> I would say... Uh, I would have been happy not to be following him for that 40 years. <laughs> okay, fair enough. fair enough. That might have been one where uh, uh, maybe my uh, Catholic upbringing only gives me a smattering of understanding on any of well, this stuff. And you might argue that his board of directors, you know, kind of made some decisions <laughs> that hamstrung him. But let's stay off of that for now. <laughs> okay. So uh, then the, uh, the third big one is... Can you get everybody step by step moving in that direction? And that's the, one of the tougher parts. And you hear people say, you know, it's my job to make big decisions. And then I get great people and they uh, uh, execute. Well, that's not the way the world actually works. And that's where I say you need to delegate, not abdicate. You need to be a fundamental part of that execution process. So you need to make that uh, make that happen to your point, because unless you actually execute and get there, get to that destination, nobody sees the, the benefit of it. That means you need to get out there. You need to understand your processes. You need to work your culture. They need to see that uh, you actually walk the talk and you're interested in people. You need to do all of those things so that people can actually see and feel the impact of what it is you've been talking about. And, and, you know, this is a massive question, so we could just pick one lesson here. But how, how do you, outside of w being clear in your communication and walking the talk, you know, how do you build those processes or how do you build that high-performance culture? How do you build the, the or delegate in a way where the leaders have accountability to what's right in the same way that you do? Oh, man, to, to your point, there is a lot to talk about <laughs> in there. Um, I'd say first, you got to pick the right kind of people uh, for your own staff who do know how to participate with you so that you know how to make a good decision. They know how to make a good decision. 
and that uh, you can be confident that whatever it is you ask them to do or they agree to do, that it will happen. Uh, while uh, that's all good, you still need to, as the old Reagan saying goes, trust but verify. So it's one of the reasons that I spent five to 600 hours a year on the plane, which is like 23 days a year, 24 hours a day, just traveling all over the world to meet with customers, employees, plants, town halls, uh, just to find out what's going on. And is, is it going on the way I think it is or the stories I'm, I'm hearing consistent? How we did appraisals and making sure everybody got an appraisal. Uh, how we tied appraisals into the behaviors that we wanted to see uh, as an organization, uh, how we did compensation, uh, the process focus that we would do, like with the Honeywell operating system, so that we could engage all of our hourly people and not just uh, salaried people. So there were a lot of these things that we did, just trying to build that engagement so that everybody felt like they were a part of making this better. It does seem like the, the focus and being super clear on the smallest number of things that hold critical importance is really uh, essential to being able to drive this through the organization. Meaning if you really want everybody focused on and on, on a million different things, you're going to get a million people moving in a million different directions. But if you can yep. kind of say, look, we, you know, we are investing for growth. Right, we we have to deliver current results, and we're investing for growth. So, like everybody might say, yeah, of course. But to be really clear, that the decisions that you're making and that you're approving and the money you're putting behind it is is very clearly not sacrificing the you know or or or, or sacrificing in the. Um, in, in the right kinds of way to communicate the right kinds of message, short-term versus long-term. I mean, you always have to make decisions based on some limited set of resources, but it's, it's the clarity, the what you say yes to and what you say no to that feels is really critical to driving this through. Is that Well, I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and it's a big point of the book is this idea of focus. And the way I used to describe it to uh, my own folks is that uh, if you're in a war of some kind and you're trying to move on a 3,000-mile front all at the same time, you're not going to make the same kind of progress as if you focus on a 30-mile section and say, I'm going to put a bunch of resources here to uh, make it through. I'd say it's no different than with anything you try to get done in business. And if you take a look at the Honeywell operating system, for example, we spent a bunch of time up front getting it right, testing it, bring it back, test it again, make sure we had it right. But even once we had it right, we had 250 factories and I limited it to about 25 in the beginning to say we are going to over-resource these 25 and demonstrate that this is uh, this works and that it can be successful. Because if I do that, then I'm going to get pulled from all the other 225 plants who look at it and say, okay, I'm not being forced to do this. I want to do this. And that difference between compliance with words and compliance with intent is huge. And I used to spend a lot of time working on how do I get compliance with intent? Because if I just get 
uh, people to do something because I said it, which is the way all the newspapers seem to think uh, CEO jobs work. Uh, you don't get anywhere near the results you do as if as you do when people feel like I like this, I want to do this, I'm going to make this happen. Then you get past that feeling that people have about, you mean, I need to do my job and this too? Right. As long as you're in this this two phase, you're never going to get there. Right. People need to feel like I want to do this. Right. Right. Um, talk to us about leadership transitions. So, you know, I, I think one of the hardest things to do is to build something and leave it in such a way that the growth that you've worked so hard to create continues. It's essential. Like if if it's essential to to effective leadership. Yeah. I'm curious about what you, you know, you know, how you approach this such that you have the confidence to leave your shares in, in Honeywell for 10 years after you leave. Uh, well, I went through a, a very extensive process in the selection. I know a lot of companies talk about how extensive their process is. Um, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Uh, I would say in our case, uh, certainly the substance of it justifies the rhetoric and is consistent with it. I really started 10 years before I was going to leave. So I was about 55 or so and said, okay, I want to start picking who are the people who are the right age, seem to be performing in the right way that we want to start giving bigger jobs to. And we had uh, 10 or 15 at the time. Uh, Darius Adamchek, the guy who did become my successor, wasn't on that list because he came in via an acquisition about a year later. We were impressed with him, and he uh, ended up on the list. I wanted to get this right because I'd seen too many cases where uh, bad transitions led to companies that just didn't do well anymore, and I didn't want that for Honeywell or for my own legacy. I wanted it to be one where this company continued to do great even after he left because people, process, portfolio were all done the right way. I spent a lot of time reading literature and found that almost all of it is not very good to be kind. And if somebody talks about what a great process a company had, but they fire that CEO four years later or the stock price doesn't move for 10 years, I think you have to question how good is a process that yields, uh, let's say, an indifferent result. Right. So we devised our own process. Uh, my HR guy and I talked a lot about it, and I interviewed a bunch of ex-CEOs to see what had worked for them and what didn't in their own transition. We developed our own uh, process. And I felt like what uh, was really critical here was uh, not just performance, which had to be a given, but the ability, uh, some certain key aspects of leadership capability that they had to have. And where I arrived at that one was uh, a lot of people uh, felt like, and this was in literature and comments made to me, figure out what the future is going to be and make sure you hire for that future, which has a seductive appeal to it, but I think has more of a kind of succubus type appeal than anything that's real because 
nobody can predict what the future is. And if you say, okay, I'm going to take a different approach. The future is unpredictable. And you think back to a year ago, who was saying, oh, COVID, you better keep an eye out for that. Pandemic, better keep an eye out for that. I mean, there were a few, maybe, not many. The good leaders have been able to figure it out. So I spent a bunch of time trying to determine what were those things that were going to be critical for any leader to have so that whatever it was, they could figure it out and they could perform. And I boiled it down to six items, which uh, I actually talked about in my share owner's letter at one point. And that's the basis on which we chose uh, Darius Adamczyk as my successor. And then we went through a long transition process. And he'll uh, kind of jokingly, but also realistically say when he first heard that it was going to be him and that it was a two year transition process, he thought, my God, I have real doubts about how how a two-year transition is ever going to work. And when we got done with the two years and in, in, when we interviewed him for the book, he said it was the best thing that ever happened in terms of making this a two-year transition. And the way we worked together made a big difference because it wasn't just my behavior that had to change. I needed uh, the successor needs to behave and be open minded and confident in a way. Also, it requires open mindedness and confidence on the part of both to make that work. So I couldn't be happier about Darius's selection and how he's doing in the job. And we still talk today because we're friends. Do you remember what those six criteria were? Oh, uh, not, not off the top not of my front. head, but I can tell I can go through some of them. Uh, one we've just talked about, and that's whatever it is, they're going to be able to figure it out. They're going to be smart, analytical, think about it. Uh, another one was the ability to think independently. And a phrase I use a lot is uh, the ability to think independently is a lot more rare than being smart. There's a lot of smart people who do well on tests, went to good schools, but they can really tell you how the herd is thinking. They can't really look at stuff and think independently. Uh, third one was uh, just an intense curiosity about everything. Because if you were going to be successful 10 years down the road, you had to be as curious 10 years from now as uh, uh, you were today. Uh, somebody who was so focused on winning that no matter what came up, no matter what problems uh, kind of intruded, they would still figure out a way to win. They wouldn't just say, ah, well, I guess uh, we're done. Uh, this is it. So it was those sort of things right. that uh, we have. But they, they're all in my, like, 2017 or 18 share owners letter. You know, it's interesting because how you've described the transition is yet one more piece of data supporting this non-binary solution to to yes. looking at the world which is yep. a lot of people and i've been part of these transitions where they say okay this is how i've done things so far but you're the ceo now you're the ceo and the, and the new ceo is saying i'm not going to be i don't have exactly the same priorities i'm going to put my mark on things it's by the way similar to how you entered honeywell right when you entered honeywell in, in 2002, you basically said, look, it's failing right now. Like, I'm not interested in that. 
And so I'm going to do things differently. And that's often how a new CEO wants to come in. And, and, and the old CEO sort of resigns himself to it. And that actually is really, really smart when you need a turnaround. But when, when the, the, the venture is successful, when it's working, you actually want to approach it differently, which is like you want the new CEO to think independently. You want them to be sort of smart and be able to think of et cetera. And you want them committed to continuing, not, not, not having to be different, but continuing what has worked in the past and, and not sort of trying to blow it up. So it's like both the independent thinking and the sort of long-term and, and connection to both the past and the future that have to be balanced because it's not a duality. Well, there's a, a lot to talk about there too, because um, to your point, I think it's different if uh, you have a failing company versus one that's been successful. Yep. Uh, failing company, I agree. You let the new guy just get started and change everything that uh, needs to be changed. In a company that's been working, a potential failure mode is to say, hey, everything we're doing is working great, so just keep doing that. That's a failure mode also. Right. And uh, you have to keep evolving. And this is where I would say it's important for both the uh, successor and predecessor to be able to work together and to have the confidence in themselves and what needs to change and what doesn't that uh, neither one of them views change or lack of change as an aspersion on the other. Rather, I spent a bunch of my time telling the board, investors, and employees, I did not leave Darius a perfect company. And there were things I would change if I was still here two years from now that he will, things I might not have changed, but I support whatever changes he wants to make because I trust him and he's going to do the right thing. By the same token, the successor has to have the confidence to not fall into either camp also where, look, this is what works. So I'm sure as hell not going to change it. Or, look, I can't uh, I don't have the confidence to uh, be able to say that my my predecessor accomplished anything. It all has to be me but rather takes that duality path you were just talking about and says, you know, I'm going to get measured on results. So if I want results, I'm going to continue doing the things that are still working. And I'm going to modify those things that are not working and need to change because I'm going to get measured on results. And I've got the confidence that whether it was done by my predecessor or it's done by me, I'm going to get measured on those results, and that's what I want. And 10 years from now, nobody's going to remember whose idea it was. They're going to remember who delivered those results. And I'd say this is where I, 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 I keep saying it, but I could not be more pleased about how Darius and I were able to work that. And we had conversations even in the beginning about the importance of trust. And I would say, look, directors will say things to me and they will say things to you. And the one thing we need to do is make sure that we both talk to each other about that, because directors can cause issues in this also, thinking they're doing something good or, you know, they're getting the straight scoop. But at the end of the day, the trust that has to exist between the two of us has to exceed any other trust that we think we may have with other people. 
And we were both able to do that. And uh, like I said, I think the world of the guy. Well, and it's also you're you're exemplifying these two attrib- these two non-binary attributes that that we were talking about also, which is confidence and humility. You've got to have confidence and the humility to learn from and follow through on the decisions that have been made in the past, not by you, but that were really great. And as the outgoing CEO, you have to have the confidence and humility to say, we've built something really great and it's not perfect. And there's lots of things that this new person's going to add. And I want to find someone who won't just sort of continue my legacy, but or will continue my legacy, but my legacy is not in all of the decisions I've made per se, but it's in the focus on winning now, winning later, and building a company with integrity and strong processes and leadership and culture that allows that to continue. Well, let me uh, let me compliment you a bit here, Peter, because uh, when I start talking about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time, a lot of people kind of nod their heads. Then uh, I'll go through some of the examples that I use, and they'll nod their heads further, saying, "Yeah, I'll go. Okay, I guess that's right. I guess that is a concept." They have a tough time taking that third step and seeing where else that shows up, and it shows up everywhere. everywhere. Whether it's how do you reopen the economy, the confidence, humility that uh, uh, you're bringing up. But you're able to take that third step, so uh, I'm impressed. Congratulations! Well, thank Not you. Need an appraisal from me, but no, uh, I'm, I'm impressed. I love appraisal from you, and that's a great place to end, David. It's <laughs> it's uh, uh, I'm going to end on a high note for me at least. Um, David uh, Cody, who has written the book "Winning Now, Winning Later: How Companies Can Win in the Short Term While Investing in the Long Term." Uh, Fortune called it the best business book ever. Hank Paulson said it's the best book he's ever read. So it's well worth a read. This conversation, Dave, has been delightful. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. It was fun, and I appreciate your uh, understanding of those concepts uh, so readily. It's impressive. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.